This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Too about just generally, Aviel is. I mean, I would. I know he wouldn't uh, go for this, but I would argue one of the uh, most significant of the new generation of theorists who take culture seriously in arguing about nationalism. So uh, today, Aviel will be speaking about uh, the 21st century as age of the nation state, uh, and as I understand it, this is part of a project of Aviel's where he's working on global political political identity. Uh, worldwide from the period 1848 to 2011, two sort of quite convenient bookends. So, Fabio, you have the floor. Thank you so much. Thank you very much sure. for having me. Uh, thank you to Joseph for uh, helping organize uh, this event. Uh, and I understand that your seminar series this year has uh, been devoted largely to the sort of prospects for the nation state um, in, the, in the 21st century. So what I'd like to do this, uh, this evening is, is explore how a historical perspective may help uh, address uh, the questions um, that, that you've been posing about the, the present and the future. Uh, Benedict Anderson famously linked the rise of modern nationalism to the spread of print capitalism and contended that the daily ritual of reading a national newspaper both reflected and sustained a sense of shared national experience. As we transition away from the era of the book and into the brave new world of Facebook, as we cast our newspapers aside in favor of the blogosphere, are we leaving behind the imagined communities of territorially bounded nation states in favor of the planet's rattling virtual communities of the internet? More generally, are the forces of globalization rendering the ideal of national self-determination a relic of the past? no longer attainable, perhaps never even having been desirable in the first place. <coughs> on the face of it, the answer on both counts is yes. Innumerable analysts have suggested that the weaving of an ever thicker fabric of global financial and economic interdependence, labor force mobility, international treaty obligations, and supranational institutions has limited the state's capacity for substantive policy making and undercut its sovereignty, confining its exercise ever more exclusively to the echo chamber of political rhetoric. To the extent that nation states have themselves contributed to the fashioning of these constraining relationships and institutions, as in the case of the World Trade Organization or the European Union, uh, their periodic bouts of chest thumping and flag waving, the states that is, uh, seem like the ineffectual spasms of spiders caught in webs of their own making. And given nationalism's association and historical memory with the experience of two world wars and numerous other conflicts, the much heralded demise of the nation state certainly does not seem like such a bad thing. But before we can discuss the prospective trajectory of the nation state, it behooves us to re-examine some of the assumptions underlying our historical perspective. In referring to the decline of the nation state, we seem to imply or assume that there was an era in which it triumphed an apotheosis of the phenomenon against which its subsequent fall from history's grace can be measured. When was the heyday of the nation state, and how did it manifest itself? By most accounts, it stretched from Italian and German national unifications to some point in the mid to late 20th century. 
the years 1917 through 19, when the doctrine of national self-determination took center stage as a legitimizing basis and or propaganda tool for the two competing ideologies of global salvation, Wilsonianism and Leninism, might well be taken as the high point of this historical arc. Then again, it was only in the aftermath of the Second World War that the principle of national self-determination was ostensibly realized across the vast expanses of what had been European overseas empires at a time when the European nation-state was being eclipsed on its own continent by superpower hegemony and or economic integration. So perhaps dating the high point of the nation-state depends on what region of the world we have in mind. Such chronological quibbling aside, there are some more substantive caveats to bear in mind. Globalization is said to be undermining the nation-state by reducing its sovereign decision-making power, and that may well be the case. But let us bear in mind that there never was an era when the practice of national self-determination came even close to the notional ideal of the unfettered exercise of collective will. Many nation-states were never more vulnerable to external forces than in the era of their alleged triumph. In the last years of the Habsburg monarchy, the Austro-Marxist Karl Renner had implicitly warned that the breakup of a multinational empire into sovereign nation-states might pose serious hazards for the newly self-governing polities. Equality of status with all other nation-states was the goal of movements for national self-determination, but such equality did not inhere in the condition of political independence. It could only be secured through the supranational rule of law. Gaining the status of a sovereign state might place a country on the same formal footing as all its peers, but outside the world of military parades, diplomatic balls, and state dinners, lurked the reality of a Hobbesian international system in which big states ate little states for breakfast and then spat out the bones. Going it alone in such an environment, Renner seemed to warn, might be no less foolhardy than Little Red Riding Hoods stepping out for an autonomous stroll in the woods. Insofar as national self-determination could be exercised in the economic sphere through the creation of protective tariffs, the results were also likely to be counter <coughs> counterproductive. And so it proved to be for the newly independent or newly expanded countries of East Central Europe between the wars. Formed amidst bloody conflicts and nasty border disputes that lasted up to several years beyond the end of the First World War, these polities remained extremely vulnerable to external aggression. And to the extent that Little, Riding, little uh, Red Riding Hood was left free to stroll about for a couple of decades, she proved ill-suited to dealing with her own identity issues. Each of the so-called nation-states, after all, contained sizable ethnic minorities whose relationship to the officially propagated visions of political nationhood remained fraught throughout this period. The interwar years marked the peak, not of the nation-state per se, but of the nationalizing state, as Rogers Brubaker has described it. The intensity of efforts to forge cohesive national identities in East Central Europe in the 1920s and 30s was in direct proportion to the very ethnocultural heter heterogeneity of those states <clears throat> and to the insecurity surrounding the status of their borders. At the close of this period, Hitler cynically yet effectively invoked the principle of self-determination to rip apart the system of nation states created by the Paris peace treaties. To be sure, his ultimate vision of racial warfare was one of limitless expansion that would respect no quaintly Wilsonian ideals. But in 1938, during the first pre-war phase of Nazi Germany's expansion, 
It was Hitler's strident claims regarding the right to self-determination of the German speakers of Austria and of Czechoslovakia's uh, Sudetenland border region that served as an effective rhetorical device for undermining Anglo-French commitment to the territorial integrity of those two countries. As he put it in his January 19, uh, 1939 speech to the Reichstag, summarizing the events that had culminated in the September 1938 Munich Conference and the annexation of the Sudetenland, quote, Germany established the right to self-determination, Selbstbestimmungsrecht, for 10 million German fellow nationals in a region where neither the English nor other Western nations had any business meddling, end of quote. Two months later, uh, of course, Germany blithely produced, uh, proceeded to violate the self-determination of the citizens of the rump Czechoslovak state. The picture was no brighter in East Asia, where following the Japanese uh, Wandung Army's seizure of Manchuria in 1931, Japan proceeded to make a mockery of the national self-determination principle by creating uh, the puppet state of Manchukuo as a facade for its absorption of the region into its empire. Among the many different attacks it took, Japanese propaganda portrayed the new polity as an inspiring project in the cultivation of a civic form of nationhood that would facilitate mutual tolerance and coexistence among Manchuria's multiple nationalities, Han, Manchu, Mongol, Japanese, and Korean, citing as a point of reference the model of Czech and Slovak partnership in Czechoslovakia. In the USSR, the facade of national self-determination was instrumentalized from the start as a mechanism for the consolidation of centralized Communist Party power over multiple nationalities of the former Russian Empire. During the 1920s, there was a very conscious effort to combat and compensate for the legacy of Tsarist-era Russian chauvinism by carving out discrete territorial republics and autonomous regions for the former empire's constituent nationalities, encouraging at least primary school instruction in a multitude of officially re recognized languages, supporting fol folkloristic forms of cultural production, and actively promoting upward social mobility for members of the proprietary nationalities in their respective republics. This formula for a policy, national in form, socialist in content, as Stalin put it, was premised on the assumption that ethnocultural identity was a neutral medium through which one could diffuse any set of political values, including Marxism-Leninism, just as the Christian gospel had been spread through translation into a diversity of languages. The crystallization of discrete, standardized linguistic territorial identities among the constituent nationalities of the former Russian Empire would, it was believed, facilitate the dissemination of socialist values and proletarian consciousness among their masses, helping pave the way to their ideological transformation and economic modernization. Through the miracle of dialectical transubstantiation, shared class consciousness and common commitment to socialist transformation would transcend the very ethno-national particularism that Moscow was institutionalizing, leading to the emergence of a supranational Soviet man or Soviet woman. <coughs> in practice, Soviet nationality's policy proved more inconsistent and self-contradictory than dialectical. If any hint of secessionism did manifest itself under this ostensibly egalitarian and enlightened system, it was by definition a symptom of bourgeois reaction and, and was dealt with accordingly through the ruthless application of violent force. Under Stalin, the increasing tendency was to apply such force preemptively and massively. Uh, Tim Snyder in his book Bloodlands has recently documented the uh, uh, sort of quasi-genocidal uh, campaign of uh, uh, 
mass shootings directed against um, uh, Soviets of Polish nationality um, during the, the last years before uh, uh, the uh, Second World War. Um, under Stalin, uh, the, uh, from very early on, and certainly by the 1930s, elements of neo-Russification were creeping back into the system, a tendency that was reinforced when the state began appealing to old-fashioned, patriotic, and even religious sentiments and imagery during the desperate struggle against Nazi Germany. Thus, both within Europe and beyond it, the interwar period was characterized more by the abusive exploitation of the national self-determination principle on the part of expansionist and autocratic states than by its realization in a global system of nation states. Moreover, as the liberal democratic nation states proved ineffectual in upholding their own professed global vision in the face of challenges from militaristic and dictatorial regimes, anti-fascists increasingly turned to communist internationalism as the only apparently viable alternative to German, Italian, and Japanese uh, expansionism. In brief, this era can hardly be characterized as the apogee of the nation state. The Second World War and its aftermath unleashed genocide and ethnic cleansing on an unprecedented scale, leaving in its wake much greater congruence between the culturally and the politically national across much of post-1945 East Central Europe, at any rate. The abandonment of overseas empires during the course of the 1940s through 60s arguably simplified the definition of national identity and national interest for some of the West European powers. Think of France's return to the clean-cut lines of the hexagon following its withdrawal from Algeria in 1962. But of course, this was also precisely the period of new superpower hegemonies that threatened to overshadow the individual European nation-state. The stridency of de Gaulle's defiance of these trends was a function of the nation-state's perceived vulnerability, not of its strength. Indeed, much of that carefully calibrated defiance took place on a symbolic rather than material plane. In the colonial world, the institutionalized double standard of the Wilsonian peace gave way to the triumph <laughs> of national liberation movements. But the boundaries of the newly independent states remained those that had been determined by imperial others rather than by ethno-national selves. As with East Central Europe between the wars, so too across much of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East after 1945, the radical disjuncture between the ideal of national self-determination and the reality of eth ethno-political hegemonies and subjugations within the newly independent countries contributed to profound domestic and international instability. In many respects, then, it is our own post-1989 era that marks the heyday of national self-determination. It is in our period that the once sacrosanct boundaries of the putative nation-state, as determined by military conquest, superpower <coughs> agreement, or the agency of imperial powers, have in many cases been successfully challenged by the leaders of territorially concentrated national minorities. The independence of the constituent republics of the former USSR and the former Yugoslavia, the breakup of Czechoslovakia, the secessions of East Timor, uh, Eritrea, and now South Sudan, and the autonomy of Iraqi Kurdistan are among the most recent examples of the new self-determination, as are the movements of indigenous peoples in Latin America. By the same token, a country such as post-1989 Poland 
does not have to wrestle with the challenges of how to incorporate, marginalize, or jettison non-Polish nationalities, precisely because its minorities and or the lands on which they resided were removed in the course of the Second World War and its aftermath. Tolerance is a virtue that is much easier to practice in the absence of diversity. The ethnically purged countries of East Central Europe can be said to be making a transition from the nationalizing preoccupations of yesteryear to something akin to Michael Billig's banal nationalism, a political and cultural cohesiveness sustained by casual everyday reminders of a shared identity that can be taken much more for granted than ever before. And to be sure, the uh, immigration uh, from overseas uh, presents new challenges to this idea of the homogeneous nation state. But, um, but the resultant minorities don't generally have secessionist claims, that they don't have historical claims to parts of nation state territories. Uh, the, the, the nature of the, of the dilemmas uh, and challenges posed by immigration are, are qualitatively different. On a less cynical note, we should recognize and acknowledge how remarkable has been the abandonment of territorial disputes and grandiose irredentist aspirations on the part of political and cultural establishments throughout <coughs> Europe. Some of the credit here may be due not only to the new ethno-national homogeneity uh, in the wake of the Second World War, but also to the legacy of the late Cold War concert built around the post-1945 territorial dispensation, as reaffirmed by the Helsinki Act of 1975, and to the incentives for good behavior created by membership in the EU and NATO. To sum up, while the interwar years may not have been the rhetorical, uh, I'm sorry, while the interwar years may have been the rhetorical heyday of national self-determination in Europe, as the post-World War II years were in Africa and Asia, the lived experience of those eras served to highlight the fragility of a political nationhood that, at least in the case of a reconfigured Europe, seems much more secure, stable, and enduring today than ever before. It is true that the present era is also without precedent in its intensiveness of economic and cultural globalization. <coughs> but it is precisely because supranational structures such as the European Union, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and NATO have assumed control over key elements of policymaking that once lay formally in the domain of the, of the individual state, that the leeway for ethnic separatism and local autonomy has increased to such a degree. Latvian, Slovak, Montenegrin, and Kosovar independence, Catalan autonomy, and Scottish self-rule would have been much harder to realize in the absence of international security guarantees and effective supranational structures of economic relations, just the elements whose absence rendered the interwar experience of national self-determination such a tragic and catastrophic failure. Conversely, the perception of globalization uh, as a threat to the integrity of the nation generates both right-wing and left-wing nationalist backlashes today. <coughs> a phenomenon somewhat analogous to the way in which the encroachment of informal imperialism provoked self-strengthening movements in places such as 19th century Japan and China. Hostile nationalist responses to latter-day globalization are not restricted to the developing world. They can be seen on the streets of Athens, in the ballot boxes of Switzerland, and in the conference rooms of the Texas Board of Education. I'm thinking of the, the rioting against austerity measures uh, last year in Athens, uh, the uh, referendum that uh, confirmed a ban, uh, approved a ban on uh, the construction of new minarets in, in Switzerland uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and so uh, uh, no decisions made by the Texas 
last year uh, to uh, reduce references and discussions of Islam and of Latino culture in uh, uh, course curricula uh, on uh, world history and, and American and Texan hist history uh, in the states uh, in the states high schools. While they were at it, they also um, removed a reference to um, Thomas Jefferson as, as being one of the political philosophers whose ideas inspired the American Revolution. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not. Um, the preferred William Blackstone. Uh, now, if the nation state is to be understood in strictly functionalist and materialist terms, then it really should ultimately fade away as national economies give way to globalized systems of production and exchange. In uh, Ernest Gellner's influential modernist explanation of the nation state, the congruence of cultural and political boundaries reflects the structural demands of an, of an industrialized economy, whose human units must fit together like standardized cogs in a machine. The passion of nationalism, as Gellner saw it, constitutes a sort of psychological superstructure that appears to stand on its own foundations, but that is in fact grounded in the material needs of the industrial mode of production. In his schema, Nationalism is not a matter of false consciousness, but of misattributed consciousness, an emergent phenomenon whose practitioner's lack of self-awareness constitutes a prerequisite, a prerequisite for the successful fulfillment of their own historically appointed mission as instruments of modernization. By the logic of Gellner's argument, the postmodern, globally dispersed mode of production should mark the end of the nation state. In an age where a single product's components are typically manufactured, tested, assembled, and serviced in countries spanning three continents, continued attachment to a world of discrete, culturally homogeneous political territorial units seems like an anachronistic hindrance to the streamlining of high-tech production, marketing, and service industry networks. If we follow this chain of reasoning to its eschatological conclusion, we can confidently predict that the melodramatic sentimentality of the patriot will ultimately give way to the dispassionate temperament of the software engineer. The geek will inherit the earth. <laughs> but before we jump to this conclusion, let us recall that networks of exchange and bonds of community have rarely been congruent with one another. Indeed, there has always been a strain between the two, sometimes productive and sometimes destructive. Periclean Athens was a dynamic entrepot at the heart of the East Mediterranean trading system. Yet even as the city-states uh, 5th century BCE demographic composition was transformed by the influx of tens of thousands of merchants, craftsmen, and slaves from other parts of the, of the Hellenic world and beyond, the polis tightened its citizenship laws, limiting full political membership to men both of whose parents were native to the city. There was certainly never any question of extending citizenship to the weaker city-states that fell under Athens' military and economic hegemony in the wake of the Persian Wars. In practice, the lines distinguishing indigenous Athenians from resident aliens did become blurred, but it, it is precisely the, the frantic attempt to clarify those lines in the face of a rapidly changing socioeconomic reality that is significant here. <coughs> the congruence of globalized commercial and political spheres was most closely approximated in the mercantilism and neo-mercantilism of Europe's overseas empires of the 16th through 20th centuries. But John Darwin has recently reminded us that the success of the most powerful of those empires, the 19th and 20th century British world system, as he does it, was closely associated with the cultivation of productive synergies between its formal and informal dimensions. The latter included not just the network of sentimental ties, 
binding the white dominions to the old metropole, but also the projection of informal influence over the, over the dominions and beyond through the exercise of British naval and financial power and Britain's ability to compensate for the relative decline in its manufacturing output and industrial exports by means of the invisible income derived from the British carrying trade and from the network of financial, commercial, and insurance services headquartered in the city of London. It was the complementarity rather than congruence of political, of political territorial fields of power with commercial financial ones that held the key to this system's success. As to Europe's formal empires, their success hinged on the concentration of political and military power in the hands of metropolitan elites uh, and their collaborators overseas, and the fostering of economic dependence in the peripheries. The spread of the concept of popular sovereignty and the eventual democratization of European politics, developments that were themselves partly a consequence of commercial and imperial globalization, were in the long run incompatible with the retention of autocratic control over colonies whose elites and masses rapidly came to expect equivalent, equivalent empowerment. Well, not so rapidly, depending on your perspective. But, uh, the notion of, of extending citizenship to all imperial subjects and thereby giving them sway over policy making at the center was a non-starter. Rome had been able to do this in 212 CE precisely because real political power at the center had shifted from civic assemblies to Caesars centuries earlier. The fragmentation of empires into nation states in the modern period, uh, or, or internationalizing states, was in the long run the only alternative. In brief, the globalization of the 16th through 20th centuries was actually the medium for Europe's unwitting propagation of its version of the territorially so circumscribed, politically cohesive, culturally assimilative, mass mobilizing state to the rest of the world. And Europe's development of that model was itself linked to the, to the dynamics of imperial globalization. Perhaps the dialectic between global exchanges and particularistic political territorial identity is inherent in the human condition, <clears throat> playing out on a variety of scales, from the consolidation of <clears throat> popularly governed city-states in the culturally and economically networked ancient Greece, to the crystallization of the nation-state in the context of a globally interdependent system of commercial and cultural rela relations. <coughs> Indeed, I would argue that we may be witnessing element, elements of this kind of dynamic at play in the turmoil currently engulfing much of the Arab world. <clears throat> and, and this is obviously um, sort of preposterously speculative, but um, excuse me a second. One of the many potential outcomes of the Arab Spring may be a stronger sense of territorial state patriotism. <coughs> the, the Middle East's nation-state system has been a tenuous affair since Britain's defeat of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the First World War. The Arab countries have been caught for decades between the ideal of pan-Arab unity, which is institutionally and geopolitically unattainable, and the internal factionalism that any state has to contend with but that has been particularly acute to the extent that it's been associated with sectarian, ethnic, or tribal differences within some of these states. Polities such as Egypt, <coughs> Libya, Tunisia, Syria, and Yemen have typically been caught between these two challenges to their stability, unity, and cohesion. In my most wishful imagination, 
the movements of the Arab Spring could eventually serve to mark the rebirth of uh, at least some of these polities as nation states whose population's collective self-image is more congruent with their actual territorial and demographic extent. Now, at first sight, this scenario seems utterly divorced from the new sociocultural and technological realities. In many ways, the Arab Spring appears to be a quintessentially transnational phenomenon. After all, one of the heroes of the Egyptian uprising was a Google marketing executive uh, who drew on the social networking capabilities of Facebook <coughs> to create an infrastructure of revolutionary mobilization. <coughs> and clearly, the geographically extensive and temporally immediate dissemination of information on the part of non-state-controlled media outlets utilizing satellite television technology contributed to the rapid spillover of revolutionary waves from one Arab country to another. From this perspective, political boundaries appear to have been rendered irrelevant and phase of their artisan artisanal training also played a role in the spread of proto-socialist challenges to liberal revolutionary elites in 1848-49. Yet the course of each revolution was heavily shaped by conditions specific to each European country, and revolutionary demands tended to be framed in national terms. For their part, the actual Arab uprisings did not happen in the virtual world of cyberspace and television broadcasting. Their physicality has been manifest at times in all too tangibly gruesome a manner on the streets of Tunis, Benghazi, Cairo, Sanha, and Dera. The institutions, constitu constitutions, and political figures that each revolution has confronted, co-opted, or sought to change are specific to each particular country. The new political syntheses arising from these events will clearly diverge dramatically between one state and another and the individual trajectories of each revolution, or counter-revolution for that matter, will create symbolic reference points and historical memories that are particular to each society's experience. Indeed, elements of a new or renewed patriotism have been discerned in some of the symbolic modes and political manifestations of revolutionary activism we witnessed over recent months. The Algerian writer Yassine Tamlali has pointed out that one of the chants favored by the crowds in Cairo's Tahrir Square was simply the Arabic for, for Egypt, Muslim, while written commentaries compared the unfolding events to the Egyptian nationalist uprising against the British in 1919. In Libya, Timlali observes Gaddafi's opponents have invoked the memory of a hero specific to that country, Omar Mokhtar, who led resistance to the Italian occupation. And in Algeria, Libya, and Morocco, Many members of the Berber minorities have rallied to the opposition, evidently seeing the revolutionary wave not as a renewed manifestation of pan-Arab nationalism, but as an opportunity to redress their own cultural and socioeconomic grievances within territorially bounded national political systems. To the extent that such trends gather force, they may ultimately lend a new resonance to territorial state patriotism, such that the new regimes may feel less of a compulsion than did their predecessors to compensate for their inner fragility by beating the drums of pan-Arab nationalism or pan-Islamic unity, dreams that by their very unattainability tend to generate frustration and extremism. Admittedly, this seems like a naively optimistic scenario at this juncture, as sectarianism rears its ugly head on the streets of Egyptian and Syrian cities, and as Libya, Syria, and Yemen have dissolved into open warfare or something close to it. But don't forget that the 1848 revolutions failed in their own day amidst ethnic conflict, interstate war, political infighting, and autocratic backlashes, yet can be seen, in retrospect at least, as heralding the birth of a Europe of democratic nation-states. 
hopefully the Middle East can skip two world wars along, you know, along the way. <clears throat> Having made the best case I can to the effect that globalization tends to reinforce rather than undermine the importance of the nation state, let me concede that today's globalization might be not just quantitatively but also qualitatively different from that of earlier centuries. The fluidity of population movements, be they legal or illegal, the ease of global travel, the deterritorialized the deterritorialized communities of the internet may all be contributing to new forms of social identity that cannot be expressed, defended, or indeed prevented by the nation state. Above all, contemporary globalization is not taking place in the context of formal empire. The humiliation of foreign rule was the main spur to the growth of modern nationalism, arguably, in an age when popular sovereignty was emerging as the legitimizing basis for state authority. Nationalism may be better suited to arise in the context of, of, of oppression and to rally its resources in the face of conquest than to survive its own success as a globalized model. It is conceivable that the triumph of the nation state is dialectically linked to its own decline. If, when all is said and done, the nation state really is, after all, on its way to making an exit from the historical stage, would this be a cause for celebration or an occasion for mourning? Earlier, I highlighted, I highlighted the illusory and self-defeating possibilities latent in the practice of national self-determination. <clears throat> the nation-state's promise of facilitating the unfettered expression of the nation's free will is doubly problematic. A, there is no free will in a world of material limitations and mutual dependence. B, the assumption that there is or should be one collective national will and a unitary and objectively identifiable national interest is potentially dangerous. As early as the mid-19th century, Lord Acton warned that nationalism constituted a mortal threat to individual liberty insofar as it presumed to subsume the self-determination of the individual under that of the collective. He pointed to the multinational state held together by shared political values as the firmest bulwark of true liberty. Uh, to quote him, the presence of different nations under the same sovereignty is similar in its effect to the independence of the church and the state. It provides against the servility which flourishes under the shadow of a single authority by balancing interests, multiplying associations, and giving to the subject the restraint and support of combined opinion. Liberty provokes diversity, and diversity preserves liberty by supplying the means of organization." End quote. The fact that the British Empire, along with the post-absolutist Austrian Empire, was one of Acton's prime examples of this golden mean between absolutism and popular sovereignty, suggests some of the problems with this approach. As Jeremy Black has put it, quote, Acton's arguments reflected not solely his Eurocentrism, but also his view that consent was not crucial to legitimacy, uh, end quote. Conversely, if we take Acton's reference in this context to apply mainly to the multinational character of Great Britain itself rather than of the entire British Empire, one might reasonably contend that the reason Britain survives to this day, uh, more or less, uh, just been reading the papers, uh, whereas the Habsburg state disintegrated, is that the former is held together by cultural and linguistic bonds that, that transcend the country's internal diversity. If Linda Colley is to be believed, uh, Britain is, or at least used to be, a nation state, its Scottish, Welsh, and English subdivisions notwithstanding. Lord Acton may simply have been one of the many Western critics of East Central European nationalism to have been blind to the national underpinnings of their own country's political cohesion. 
More broadly, we must ask ourselves the question, for all the limitations, dangers, and self-contradictions of national self-determination, what other formula is there for combining politi political cohesion with popular sovereignty? How is one to preserve freedom in the absence of bounded political territorial communities? Who is to do the self-determining in the absence of a national self? And can one have democracy without territorially delimited forms of self-determination? As John Stuart Mill famously put it in a statement that Lord Acton took exception to, quote, one hardly knows what any division of the human race should be free to do if not to determine with which of the various collective bodies of human beings they choose to associate themselves, end quote. Abominable deeds have been committed in the name of the nation state and on behalf of the doctrine of national self-determination, as indeed they have been in the name of religion, socialism, and even liberty, equality, and fraternity. Uh, one or two bad deeds may even be attributable to the, to the idea of apple pie in, in, in my own country. Um, but the abuse of an ideal or the refusal on some of its advocates' parts to acknowledge countervailing principles need not invalidate its core principles. It should just alert us to the need to maintain a balance among potentially conflicting values, rights, and interests. It is true that the principle of national self-determination begs difficult questions about where the boundaries between national selves should be drawn. But at least nation states have boundaries, which can in principle be shared in common rather than fought over with neighboring states, and within which mutual accommodation among competing interests is the key to long-term effective governance. In the absence of a meaning meaningful national unit of belonging, people may be increasingly drawn to transnational millenarian movements whose aims are inherently unbounded in scope, and which have no incentive or basis for compromise with competing interests because they are not seeking a share in power over a clearly demarcated territory. The nation state may be a losing proposition, an unwise investment in today's fast-changing political marketplace. But we should recognize that in the absence of coherent forms of nationhood, we face the risk of losing well-defined public spheres. As the printing press gives way to the Twitter sphere, we face the risk that rather than drawing us together into a cosmopolitan community, community, globalization may reduce us to a disembodied chat room tribalism. A greater and greater proportion of social and political communication will take place in geographically far-flung, yet mutually isolated, web-based niches, while those disaffected by such trends retreat into reactionary chauvinism or chiliastic extremism. Perhaps then there are at least elements of the nation state that we should strive selectively to retrieve from, from the dustbin of history before it is hauled away for good. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks, Aviel. That was uh, very, very interesting. Lots to, uh, to chew over and think about, and hopefully we can have uh, a good discussion. Um, I'm going to open it up in general to, to anybody who wants to. That's super.
which could threaten national state system, but if the Indonesian state system is founded on the principles and ideas of self-determination, respectfully, the sovereignty of 1830, the state would come in something like responsibility to protect the humanitarian insistence on the kind of correctness or validity of human humanitarian intervention. I just want to make you, I mean, so, so you're saying that, the, the, uh, you're talking about, if I understood you correctly, the, sort of the, the tension between the sort of inherent, I suppose, selfishness uh, of the nation state uh, and, and, its, uh, and the universality of, of human rights doctrine? Yeah, I think, no, it's, I think the challenge to the, to the nation state may come from more from the ideas rather than... Right, right, right. Uh, Right, but 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 the ideas specifically are you're talking about are are are, are you, you sort of universal. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I guess that begs the question of whether the right to national self determination is one of the universal human rights. Right? It's kind of an interesting fact. I mean, uh, and uh, I mean, you, you're right. And I, yeah, as I, I mean, as I, as you saw towards the end, I'm I'm kind of wobbling myself. Uh, I'm hedging my bets. I know, you know. <laughs> um, so twenty years from now, I can say, well, you know, I never said that. I, uh, I never committed myself to anything. Um, uh, but um, but but I think it's been. Uh, but I, I think that there's sort of an inherent tension there. Uh, so, I mean, in in principle, you could have a world government protecting human rights globally, and and perhaps. Yeah, I mean that's it's sort of, that's it's certainly attainable in principle, but I but um, but I'm not sure it's attainable in the 21st century. Um, and uh, you know, even if you look at the if you look at the EU, um, I think there you see the sort of uh, I think arguably the most advanced model of supranational uh, cooperation, institutionalization, uh, and um, shared commitment to. Uh, a universalistic and certainly Europe-wide vision of human rights and, 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 uh, is, a, is a sort of chartered uh, and formalized uh, and, and fundamental aspect of, of, uh, of, of what constitutes the EU. Um, but uh, you know, but 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 it, it, it remains. Uh, but the EU, by this very same token, is also a preserver and upholder of the collective. Uh, right to cultural and political self-expression of of cultural communities and and, uh, and national communities um, and uh, you know uh, some some years ago uh, quite quite a number of years ago I remember reading an editorial in uh, the French uh, newspaper Le Monde uh, describing some uh, alleged British British proposal to reduce the number of languages used regularly uh, as official languages by the EU, saying, you know, there's more countries enter the EU, it's becoming unwieldy, why not just limit it to, you know, the big one, the major ones that everybody is going to know as a second language, English, French, Italian, German, something like that, uh, a kind of pragmatic uh, proposal. And Le Monde was waxing um, irate and indignant about this, saying, you know, the arrogance of these British, you know, why, why is Italian or, or English or French, for that matter, uh, you know, uh, any more important or significant than, than uh, Dutch or uh, you know, uh, you know, any other sp uh, smaller. It was the cost uh, rather than the diversity. I'm sorry. It was the cost rather than the diversity. 
Right, right, or or any or, or Greek, uh, and, and and then it went on to say, but but you know, um, and, and for that matter, if if you if you really want to make things more efficient and and uh, cost effective. Then why not just use French? <laughs> uh, so, sort of, uh, you know, so you have um, inherent within the structure of the EU uh, a, a, a protection and elevation of the national, uh, which is seen and I think is largely uh, compatible with and, and, and maybe even an aspect of this shared vision of, of human and, and of cultural. Uh, rights, um, and you see it also in the sort of the, in the indigenous movements in, in Latin America and elsewhere, um, which are seen as uh, sort of uh, embodying a kind of uh, a, a cause of, of historical justice, um, following centuries of conquest, uh, and, and are now seeking to um, gain a kind of uh, dignity uh, and capacity for self-preservation for their individual languages and cultures uh, and so forth, perhaps attached to some form of, of political uh, autonomy or, or, or regional autonomy. Um, so the trend seems to be towards uh, a recognition that, that certain forms of collective rights are an aspect of human rights, um, even as they obviously are also in tension with the idea of individual rights. And I, I think the tension is there, but I, but I, I think that, to, that, it's, that it was the mistake of progressive uh, political thinkers throughout much of the 19th and 20th century, uh, liberals and socialists alike, to imagine that they could leave uh, matters of, of collective self-determination and, and uh, collective identity uh, outside of their uh, ideological systems um, and focus simply on, on, on the individual uh, as bearer of rights in the liberal case or on the social class as bearer of rights uh, in, in the socialist case. I, I think they did so at their own peril and, and, and to their own detriment, uh, thereby essentially allowing uh, the right to monopolize the rhetoric and imagery of nationalism and to turn it to evil purposes. It strikes okay. me that um, There's this current conflict about the expression of human rights as individual rights, which actually leaves out an enormously important aspect of human rights, which is that it is not only the right of the individual's physical survival and growth and development, but their, their innate um, competences to be, to be uh, uh, in an exchange with the culture and, and be a social being. Right. And I think that what is so interesting about Europe is that it is precisely within this mildly wobbly and, and rather unwieldy uh, supranational structure we are seeing a, a, a refocusing of individual identities of countries. Right. I'm Dutch by birth. Right. Um, but one can see it in, in a number of the smaller entities. I think that is a very interesting it, it, it acknowledges that um, for the establishment of Still, historical paths to be trans right. transformed. Right. 
Go ahead, John. Um, yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with your analysis. Um, um, I think you're, you're quite right to say that the uh, principle of the nation state has never been, um, uh, it, it's, never, it's never achieved any kind of uh, monopolistic uh, um, uh, conversation in, in, in world politics. As uh, the principle of nationality has always been competing with other other configurations. Um, the title of your talk, though, is the 21st century of the age of the nation state, which implies that perhaps with the collapse of empire, that perhaps the principle of nationality will break free of these kind of constraints and uh, at last achieve, uh, as were the. the uh, uh, the goals uh, of, uh, of, of sovereignty, um, and I just wonder if that's that's the case. Whether there aren't other alternative power configurations always emerging through the um, unpredictabilities of historical development, perhaps the, the resurgence of religion. Who knows? There might be a return of empire too, and. and forms, so that, as it were, the principle of nationality will simply remain one amongst a number of other principles in competition with other, other ways of organizing the world. And then there's the question of the, the question of whether the principle of nationality should be equated with that of the nation state, um, because in many parts of the world it's very difficult to see how um, particular Territorial areas can be configured easily to become nation states in much of Africa, for example. So there's bound to be a kind of tension between state and ethnicity. Right. Um, I mean, so partly it depends what, of course, what begs the question of what does age of the nation state mean, and and if one takes that to mean the the, the, the age of the untrammeled sovereignty of the of the nation state, then. Then certainly that that's not what I'm uh, predicting, but but I guess my point is that that the twenty the parts of the twentieth century when certain when when that's uh, when that sort of crude notion of, of national sovereignty um, was more pro widely prevalent uh, than it is today. Uh, to the, to the detriment of any meaningful form of national self-determination. Uh, this is ultimately sort of a, uh, a self-defeating and, um, uh, and, and self-destructive and self-destructive uh, concept of, of the nation state um, whenever and wherever it was, it was aspired to or, or, or practiced. Uh, and so that, so that is, in that sense, my point is precisely that uh, a world that is that, that is more uh, sort, of, sort of where people are more open to uh, operating on and interacting on, on multiple levels, uh, the level that we call the nation state can achieve greater coherence, uh, stability, and, and um, uh, play a more productive role in the overall scheme of things. That is to say, uh, you know, the, uh, Germany operating as a, as a nation within the European Union, 
I would say, you know, represents a, a sort of a success of the nation-state model <laughs> in a way that uh, that uh, Bismarck's Germany or Hitler's Germany, uh, you know, by the same uh, token, were, were ultimately um, you know, uh, complete failures. Um, as to other regions of the world, uh, uh, such as Africa and the, the sort of post-colonial world, um, I, I mean, the, the so creating polities whose, whose boundaries and are, are entirely congruent with, uh, with uh, ethno-linguistic units would obviously be a disaster. Uh, but by the same token, uh, ignoring the power of cultural and linguistic affinities um, in shaping people's sense of themselves and the way they interact with one another and with the state and so forth, uh, you know, comes at great cost. Uh, and for many years following independence in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, uh, Nationalism in many of these countries meant uh, sort of uh, loyalty to the post-colonial state, uh, and and specifically uh, loyalty to the post-colonial elites that happened to dominate those states, and in many cases uh, exploit uh, those states. Uh, and in many instances, the the dominating elites uh, actually were bound together by uh, ethnic. Uh, and familial bonds that belied the sort of universalistic uh, rhetoric uh, that they employed. Um, Syria uh, is, is, is an example of a, you know, an, an Alawite-dominated system that uh, legitimizes itself in the name of uh, Syrian and Pan-Arab uh, nationalism. There's, there's, a, there's a disjuncture between the, uh, I mean, there always is, but there's a radical disjuncture between the, um, the the rhetoric and the practice of, of these um, political elites. Um, so, uh, you're right. Maybe maybe age of the nation state is, is too reductionist, but but age of national self determination might be a better uh, term. I think self determination can be achieved uh, not necessarily or exclusively through uh, complete secession and independence. So that's one option that say South Sudan is taking. It can also take the form of internal autonomy. It can take Territorial autonomy, extraterritorial forms of autonomy. Um, it, it all depends on the local circumstances and, and historical legacies. But, but even but, uh, it, it, it requires acknowledging the legitimacy of loyalties and affinities that for years nationalists derided as, as tribal. Right? Um, and, and so, uh, so in that broad sense, I think the 21st century can be, among other things, the, the century of, let me revise it, to national self-determination in, in a multiplicity of forms that, that certainly can only work if they, if they complement rather than undermine these other levels of organization. Yeah, can I just think of that? Uh, would it not be more plausible to argue that 21st century would be the age of nationalism, insofar as um, nationalism feeds off uh, the idea often of the, the nation-state of reali realization, but the nation-state in many contexts can't be achieved. It can only be achieved within, uh, say, in, in the African uh, African context, within a, 
<coughs> kind of non-national state basis, right. or, uh, or yeah, for example, Catalans see their autonomy as, as being more uh, able to be achieved again through the European Union. So. In a sense, it's uh, it's the very inability to achieve a kind of dominance of the nation state that that, that, that uh, explains the resurgence of nationalism as a principle um, that, as where well, the nation should be the the principle of legitimacy and the principle of order, and there are all kinds of multiple ways in which you try to achieve it. Certainly, globalization does tend to uh, in insofar. And so far as you can master it through international organizations, it, it, it does depend on you having a nation state to express, as were, mm -hmm. the drive. So there is a drive to achieve a nation state, mm -hmm. and uh, nationalist movements emerge all the time to, to do that. But often it isn't, isn't possible. So there, there are all kinds of multiple levels in which, right. uh, through which nationalist movements have to operate. Right. But in the end, the idea of a world of nation states is impossible because there are too many potential nations. Right, I mean, so it's a never-ending uh, spiral, but I mean, you know, and we see the number of members of the United Nations mm -hmm. multiplying and increasing from here. Even Andorra is now fully you know, sovereign <laughs> in, the, in the United Nations. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, you know, yeah, on the one hand, it, sort of, it, it, it uh, sort of, it, it's, it's this, you know, Matryoshka syndrome, the Russian doll syndrome, that the more states achieve independence, uh, the more minorities within them want to achieve the same thing, and, and it's, a, it's a sort of infinite regression, potentially, down to the, I mean, there, there was a, during the, uh, some of the, the ethnic um, conflicts in, in uh, Yugoslavia, in the 90s, there was a, a cartoon, cartoon in the New Yorker, I think it was, that um, was, uh, captioned the logical conclusion of East European nationalism, and it, it showed um, a couple of uh, you know, disgruntled-looking uh, homesteaders uh, facing one another across barbed wire uh, with you know, shotguns in hand, and one had a label that said Independent Republic of Ivan, and the other one was the, <laughs> the People's Republic of Fred. Uh, and, you know, uh, so, uh, so short of that, uh, you know, complete congruence of uh, you know, liberal individualism with national self-determination, there's, there's always going to be a tension. And the question is how that tension is, is, is navigated and, and, and managed. Uh, and uh, I mean, and it's going to vary from region to region. I mean, I think the, the European model suggests that to the extent that supranational bonds are tightened, Greater latitude for secessionism by smaller groups because it doesn't because it, it can be managed within the larger overarching structure. So be it in the form of, of uh, self of, of autonomy or outright independence. Say Scotland becomes independent, it'll be a peaceful uh, process that uh, needn't uh, unleash chaos. So in that sense, it's 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 much more realizable than it ever was in the past. Um, to the extent that equivalent structures flourish elsewhere in the world in the parts of the century, maybe similar flexibilities might, might manifest themselves, or maybe Europe will prove exceptional. Um, but I think it's a, certainly a, a very positive uh, model to the extent that it can be um, imitated. 
Um, and then, uh, on the other hand, there are also intermediate levels. And, and, and here, you know, I think historical experiences along the way may shape uh, sort of uh, national identities that we don't yet recognize today. South Sudan is an interesting case. I mean, things look pretty grim right now in the possibility of, of renewed warfare between North and South. And so it's probably a terrible example to choose. But, but um, you know, let, let me speculate that, uh, I mean, South Sudan contains you know, dozens of different ethnic groups and even religious groups. It's, it's not all you know, cut and dry between North and South. But I would imagine uh, that the shared experience of a decades-long struggle for independence followed by the realization of that independence and potentially yet another war to defend that independence may in the long run create a sort of shared historical memory in South Sudan uh, that, uh, that will give some sort of substance and meaning to, the, to, to an eventually emergent South Sudanese national identity uh, and, uh, and thus a nation state may, may emerge rather than uh, its independence simply being the opening phase of, of another sequence of secessions and, and fragmentations. Again, probably a terrible example to choose, but um, I don't think it has to be all either or. It strikes me that the, the vision of an infinite um, multiplication of national identities, you have left out very, the, the limiting factors, and the limiting factors are uh, the economic and, and financial uh, production system that underlies each of them, and we haven't looked at them. If you look at the model of the British Empire, uh, very much of what has what now goes to a national identity is underpinned by a financial and, 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 and uh, by a model of reciprocal production between Britain and its colonies that actually has generated the city of London and therefore was the model for what's happening in New York and in the other uh, centres. Unless we actually analyse and look at what are the constraints on national identity imposed by the financial and production systems that operate in briefly and, and on, on a particular resource base for that particular area, you, you can then say there is a limit to the number of national identities that you would establish. You, you, you can, can or also you can say something about what, what are the groups in which they are going to fall. I mean, we're seeing that now with the emergence of the BRICS. But nobody The, the emergence of? The BRICS. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. But nobody yeah. is telling me uh, giving me, as a public, a picture of what are the underlying power structures that are very invisible and, when it comes to the financial system, makes enormous efforts to remain invisible. But I'm not, I'm not, but here again, I'm not, it's not clear to me how, so you're saying that the BRICS will eventually become a, a, a sort of global national grouping themselves? Yeah, yes, I do. Like Brazil and, and, and China? And the question then would be, to what extent are they primed by the, the, Euro, the, 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 the European United States uh, uh, economic model of, of functioning? And to what extent do they become, do their own production systems become autonomous? Unless they do, that national entity is not going to survive as a nation state. It, it, may, it may survive as a, as a cultural and, 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 and ethnic identity, but it is not supported. It, it has not been given uh, the powers to to function in an, in an, open, in an open world. Right, I'm, not, I'm not sure how, I mean, if I'm understanding correctly, I, I find it hard to imagine that Brazil and China becoming one nation. No, no. Or Brazil and India. Independent. 
you know, at, at they, they each become an initiative of own life, but to, to, to the extent to which they are oh, sure. uh, shaped still by um, the development of the, of the financial systems that have arisen from Europe and America. So, Joseph, you had a question. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, I think he's... Yeah. No, I mean, I, I just want to sort of raise a quick question about um, this idea of, like, the potential in uh, the post-colonial world um, to kind of perhaps have a second kind of dawn of, 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 of nationalising sort of tendencies, given the fact that at the moment you have nation states which are extremely um, heterogeneous. It seems to me that in, in, if you look at European history, National identities have a massive kind of ability to soak up diversity. If you look at the French example, um, you had people speaking many different languages, mm -hmm. affiliated with many different ethnic groups, and over time, this has kind of taken on a homogeneous um, sort of form of national identity. Do you see this potential in the post-colonial world? Because I see it, it perhaps in the Arab Spring in some countries that there's been rallying around this idea of being Egyptian or um, being sort of uh, perhaps even Libyan in a certain way. Right. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I see something equivalent in the, in potentially in, in some of the Arab Springs, more so in some than in, than in others. But it, it uh, but I, I think that as a general model, um, you know, the, the problem is that France took a thousand years to uh, to sort of happen upon, you know, to to. to uh, happened upon, a, 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 well, it was, I mean, much of it came from forces from above, but in any case, to develop this kind of cultural and, and national integration uh, so that by the 19th century, it's, it's, it's just the peasants, you know, or still a majority of the population was still, I mean, the, elite, the elites uh, are, are already French at the time that Eugene Weber is talking about peasants becoming, finally becoming Frenchmen as well. Um, and, uh, but once having emerged as a, as a, as a model, uh, and, and a model that everyone feel either wants or feels compelled to emulate, uh, you know, and a model that, that dominates the way the world functions and shapes the way it functions, um, nobody else has got a thousand years <laughs> to do it in. Uh, and so, of course, with modern media and, and mobilization techniques and so forth, it maybe it doesn't need to take a thousand years to fashion so that the, so uh, but um, but it can't happen overnight either uh, and so uh, I think this goes back to John Hutchinson's point that, that uh, in, in some cases alternative models will have to be found uh, that seek uh, to define some kind of civic identity based on common experiences and values that transcend uh, the ethnic and religious and, and uh, linguistic, but it will have to be combined with toleration of uh, that kind of diversity in, 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 in the form of autonomous educational institutions, regional autonomies, uh, and, and so forth. And, and I think it was one of the mistakes, uh, probably unavoidable, of, of the East European countries after World War I that they uh, sort of sought to adopt the kind of an idealized vision of the of the French model, of the West European model, um, overnight to their own cases, and that that merely unleashed um, backlashes and internal tensions that they couldn't uh, cope with. Uh, and, and granting autonomies would have been a much wiser path to follow. Yeah. Uh, 
So I'm sorry. So, so, uh, so the, the question is actually: divisionary politics up to now has been used by minorities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So would it be the case then, although it's a political power structure, power contestation, uh, you know, between the forces, uh, main uh, protagonist nation state, like in Turkey, Turkish nation state, uh, would claim or suggest? For any reason, uh, the division. Oh, I see, I see, I see. That's interesting. Yeah, kind yeah. Kind of a setback from the, you know, so many times cited unified. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen that in the past. I mean, uh, we saw that with decolonization. I mean, De Gaulle sort of, you know, originally identified the the control of colonies as uh, sort of a measure of one's rank in the world as a great as an imperial power. So he didn't want to let go of them. Eventually, he came to the realization that that you know fighting for Algeria was was draining French power and making it you know vulnerable to American influence and dependent on the United States rather than freeing it. So so he made a sort of uh, a strategic decision to jettison uh, the colonial uh, claim rather than uh, rather than to hold on to it and, and to use that jettisoning to, to create a leaner. You know, leaner, meaner uh, France who, that would be able to uh, reduce its dependence on the Anglo-American world as he saw it, and then you, uh, something vaguely comparable happened with Gorbachev. I mean, uh, I mean he, I, you know, he also I think originally wanted to reinvigorate the Soviet and communist systems and re restore it to an idealistic Leninism that he was sort of the only person on the face of the planet still to believe in. Uh, 
but um, uh, you know, but when he was faced with the dilemma that he could either you know hold on to um, the, the informal zone of control in, in, in the Warsaw Pact um, and give up perestroika, or hold on to perestroika and the sort of re, uh, you know, warmer relations with the West, uh, and, and the potential that he saw in that for for broader Soviet global prestige and influence. Uh, at the price of giving up the Warsaw Pact, he, you know, he effectively, you know, he let the Warsaw Pact drift away when it, uh, when the revolutions began. So, um, so at that level, uh, at the sort of imperial level, we've seen that kind of, uh, and, and in the Soviet case, it was unusual because it came without the without a war, unless you count the Cold War. Uh, uh, you had a, a, a power jettisoning areas that had been under its control as part of a, partly in response to unexpected uh, circumstances, but partly as a, as a strategic decision to, to, to move that in that direction in the face of the dilemma, rather than take the option that Khrushchev had taken in 56. Um, so, uh, so I think it's entirely conceivable uh, that something like that could happen at the nation state level uh, also, it sort of it goes against the grain. It, it's hard to uh, it, it's hard to sell oneself uh, as a successful politician if one has. one's na national territories as these things tend to be seen. So, uh, so I think it's less likely to happen, um, but, you know, but I think a likelier scenario is one in which a decision is made to, you know, in the face of resistance, uh, to, to give way rather than to maintain the perpetual uh, fight. And, and, you know, the Czechoslovak breakup is, is probably you know, an, another good example of that, where the, the Czechs didn't embrace the idea, but uh, they also weren't willing to sacrifice the Czech future in a, in a you know, um, stable uh, you know, Central and Western Europe um, in order to somehow, if they even could, fight to hold on to Slovakia. I might just do. Uh, oh, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I know. Well, my name is Haile from Polish Academy of Science. Uh, I know well the two cases of uh, Poland and Vietnam, and I see um, cause is the age of nation state, but in different with different strategies. Poland used well the nation and state as Germany to play in European Union, but in Vietnam we have the crisis of the hyphen between the nation and state. Within the country, at least there are three big movements for self-determination. Two of them belong to the UN for uh, self-determination seek or something, I don't know, well, 100 members in the list of the UN official list. 
and one uh, movement of the home uh, Hmong people has yes. like five million population is more than Laos or even Czech or Czech Republic mm -hmm. or Slovakia. Mm -hmm. So it's weak enough. It's not <coughs> such a minority. Mm -hmm. And the borderland um, or the border the map the, the border mapping was started hundred years ago by the French and the British, right? But it finished last year. In the 2010 we had the writing or drawing land. And but now the the, 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 the water territory is still in dispute between uh -huh. China, Vietnam, sure, and yeah, 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 yeah. shutting each other. So I see here you know the two contrary um, strategy or, or track to it. In Europe we have uh, the strong nation state together as one player. But in Southeast Asia or in Vietnam we have like so the hyphen crisis of hyphen and and Vietnam used ASEAN to strengthen that that connection rather than. And so, uh, uh, what do you see as the strength of the European model? The sort of the internal cohesion of the nation state, or the cooperation between? Uh, well, nation and state together. Right, as right. One player. Right. To to to, to play in European Union, mm -hmm. but in Vietnam we have the opposite. I mean, Vietnam used ASEAN identity to to strengthen to to make. To, uh, yeah, to, to, to accommodate the subgroups, is it? Yeah. Okay. So it's mm -hmm. like opposite. Uh, Interesting. Uh, but 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 doesn't the Viet well? I, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the Vietnamese model. You, you say that they use the the ASEAN. The ASEAN, uh, sort of uh, EU. You know, in, in, in I see. I see that they, they're, they're sort of Vietnam status and ASEAN as sort of a way of legit of strengthening the, 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 internal the legitimacy and power of the state yes. internally. But isn't there also a claim to uh, embody the identity of a Vietnamese people uh, and, and with, a re with a result that, that minority groups, I mean, isn't the resistance, uh, and resi aren't the resentments and resistances of, of groups like the Hmong a response precisely to a certain vision of, of cultural nationalism, ethno-nationalism that the, that the state is, is, is propagating. And wouldn't that be analogous to say what the Polish, the, the vaguely to the, the Polish state in the interwar period when there were Ukrainian and uh, Lithuanian, Belarusian, German, Jewish, and other minorities, uh, who some of whom had trouble seeing themselves reflected in the institutions and, and, and symbols of a state that defined itself in largely ethnic Polish terms. Is, is that not roughly, is there, is there some analogy between Vietnam today and Poland in 1930? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, but Poland got a drawing borderline first by themselves or by the Russians in, uh, after the war, but in Vietnam, we didn't have that, you know, until last year. Right, well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's the, I mean, that, that's where the limitations of the European example come into play. I mean, I, I, mean, I, think, I think it's a, it's an uncomfortable truth that one of the reasons for Europe's for the relative stability and cohesion of some of Europe's nation states today is a legacy of the horrific you know, genocidal genocide and ethnic cleansing and 
great power decisions to move borders and populations across borders in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, so when communism collapsed in Poland in 1989, uh, Poland and, and, and some of the other Central, East Central European countries made relatively smooth transitions to you know, liberal democratic systems of government for many different reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that they didn't have sizable territorially concentrated ethnic minorities to deal with anymore. The one except, you know, one of the big exceptions to that was Yugoslavia, and in Yugoslavia they they, they had their bloody ethnic cleansings in the 90s, and, you know, uh, you know think the, the, the Poles had gotten over that over with, so to speak, or had it gotten over with for them uh, half a century earlier. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a problematic thing to talk about because that, that this is, you know, it should not be a prescription. <laughs> this, is, this is too high a price to pay. That does not risk, I mean, Chantiano's book uh, on blood and death, for example, raises the question whether Europe is the great exception rather than the kind of norm, i.e. Mm. The, the kind of confluence or conflation of nation and state which emerges out of this kind of history of warfare in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and he argues it simply isn't matched in Latin America or indeed Africa. Yeah. Uh, but it, nevertheless, it has become the norm in world politics simply because of the, the dominance of Europe. Right. Um, um, so it, it does raise the questions about the age of the nation state, whether, again, we're still living within European models, which perhaps aren't appropriate. Perhaps well, so, but but I, I just don't know how to I, I don't know how to escape yeah. that, and I don't know how to realize any kind of you know. So maybe the liberal democratic ideal is also, of course, a European or trans or Euro-Atlantic model. I don't think we can get rid of the nation-state idea without getting rid of the self-determination of popular sovereignty idea. And so and so, I, you know, maybe that too is just unrealizable, and and then. You know, history is just a relentless tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of escaping, I'm sure Aviel uh, would like to escape from oh, the bar. Okay. It's it's great time. fun. You've done very well, and thank you all for your questions. Thanks, Aviel, once again. Thank you so much. Did you want to announce anything? No? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.